when it comes to prison abolition and these ongoing issues of mass incarceration, we have suddenly entered this new moment where these ideas are being discussed in the mainstream. And more than that, they are being taken seriously. They're no longer only considered an extreme or radical point of view. It is a big, real change, and one of the leading figures in this movement for many years has been Angela Davis, who, as you'll hear, when it comes to labeling her a leader, that's not something that she's entirely comfortable with. There's a tendency to focus on the individual at the expense of allowing people to understand that history unfolds not as a consequence of the actions and the words of great individuals, but rather as a consequence of people coming together, joining hands and uniting with their differences. Angela has a new book out that she co-authored called Abolition Feminism Now, and like it or not, Angela's name and face have become this thing in our culture, right? A symbol for the struggle for black liberation, anti-capitalism, abolition, feminism, and all that started when she was arrested in the 1970s. She was ultimately found not guilty, but her arrest and time spent incarcerated made her profile just explode. People around the world rallied around her, and as I alluded to earlier, that created some tension because a fact of Angela's story is that she is someone who did not seek out fame. She is not comfortable with it, and yet she has also risen to that challenge and she's pointed, always pointed, that attention towards not herself but her work. So, for the final episode of our season, Angela Davis joins us to talk about how we sustain and keep pushing movements forward, how you can be supportive of a movement and still be critical of it, I think that's a big one, and we talk about how her ideas of gender have continued to evolve. Without further ado, from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I am Jeffrey Masters and this is LGBTQ and A. So you describe the period you were incarcerated as being immensely fruitful. Not only was it critical in shaping your political journey you've written, but you say it also helped you discover your intellectual vocation. What specifically did you learn or experience during that time that was so influential in shaping you? You know, first of all, I should say, as the years have passed and as the negative aspects of imprisonment have begun to sort of recede, I've recognized how fruitful that period was and in many ways how much of a gift it was. Uh, before being imprisoned, I had devoted many years to struggles for the freedom of political prisoners, along of course with many other activists, and I really thought we understood the role of jails and prisons as instruments of racism and repression. but. When I was arrested myself, I began to realize that we were not taking into account the degree to which these institutions were so deep, deeply gendered. Uh, of course, I did not have access, we did not have access to the uh, theoretical language at the time, but I realized there was a profound gap in our understanding that we had been engaged in these struggles as if the only people who went to jail and, and, and prison were men. 
Of course, that was a, a time uh, which um, witnessed the rise of the women's liberation movement. You know, I supported the women's liberation movement, but I was deeply critical at the same time. During the time I was in jail, I had the, uh, the, 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 the opportunity to engage in extended reflections. I wrote two major articles when I was in jail. One was on Black women and slavery, which um, I thought was relevant to the debates at that time, to the contemporary debates around the role of Black women in struggles for Black liberation. The other article was on the question of how gender equality is inherent to capitalism. Uh, and that was inspired very much by, my, by the ideas, the philosophical ideas of my mentor, Herbert Marcuse. Uh, but I suppose I can say uh, briefly that uh, as someone who had been active for quite a long time and who uh, had been, you know, rushing around from one rally uh, to the next uh, and, and trying to engage in intellectual labor at the same time, this was really the first time that I, I had the opportunity to reflect deeply on this question of gender. I don't want to oversimplify things at all, but do you think you might not have found your way to becoming such a significant figure in the abolitionist movement had you not spent time behind bars? Mm, you know, I, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Uh, for, for one, I don't really consider myself so significant as an individual. I see all of the work that, that I've done in relation to abolition and, and other movements as a part of collective struggles. Uh, so I, I don't know whether I would have played exactly the same role had I not gone to jail, but I like to think uh, that there would not have been any major uh, difference in the role that I played. You know, whether, you know, whether I would have become a known figure or not, probably not. Probably hardly anyone would have known my name had it not been for the incredibly phenomenal movement that was organized all over this country and all over the world. And so I like to think of myself as standing in for that movement, you know, rather than, you know, as, uh, as, as an individual who has... Uh, the kind of distinctive qualities that would lead to uh, becoming a known person. And isn't that the great irony, too, of arresting you and putting you on trial, is that it did make you this international rock star, right? And you were able to use that celebrity to become even more effective in your work. I have to say that I did not welcome that role. And I still feel a bit uncomfortable You're very humble. in that role. <laughs> Well, tell me this. The first place you were housed was the Women's House of Detention, and you've written extensively about what a queer place that prison was. I could not tell, though, if you were out and aware of your own sexuality at that time. How aware were you or how were you thinking about it? Well, I, you know, cringe when I look at, you know, some of the language that I use in describing li life in the uh, Women's House of uh, Detention uh, and how I was often critical of the way that, you know, some of the women seemed more interested in hooking up in personal relationships and developing surrogate family formations than 
organizing against the jail administration. Uh, I mean, that was how I, you know, I saw my major identity as political. And, and to a certain extent, I still do. I didn't identify as queer at the time. It would be many years before this identification would become meaningful for me as an individual. But I do think that spending time in the House of De- uh, Women's House of Detention, uh, the House of D, we called it, and being inside a queer culture had had uh, an impact on me, had a great impact on me. I was wondering that because in your autobiography, which amazingly was edited by Toni Morrison, you do not mention your sexuality, but the book was published in 1974, and I didn't know if including your own sexuality would have been an option even at that time. Uh, there, w- there, there really would have uh, been nothing for me to write about at that time. Uh, I was supportive of the, you know, what we then called the gay liberation movement, uh, but but I um, myself did not identify as queer and, and was not involved in, in, in the kinds of relationships that would have generated uh, uh, that kind of identification. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Let me say that I, 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 I totally support the politics of coming out. Uh, but at the, ta- at the same time, I'm critical of the assumption that one's identity has to be the major uh, driving force that determines one's politics. Uh, And I should say that I was supportive of the gay liberation movement long before I identified as a member of the LGBTQ community. This is a logic that is uh, pretty much the same that I've attempted to use with respect to other movements of liberation. I don't have to be a member of the Latinx community to be a passionate supporter of anti-Latinx racism, to place defense of immigrants, uh, for example, at the center of my own uh, political awareness. Uh, And I should point out that I've always been critical of movements whose sole aim is assimilation, including those Black movements that are uh, only concerned with integration, inclusion, and not radical uh, transformation. So while early on, before I um, entered as a member of the LGBTQ community, I embraced those sectors of the gay movement that were anti-racist and anti-capitalist. Uh, I didn't identify with narrow demands for equality in, in the military or or marriage equality. Not that I wouldn't be supportive of these demands as civil rights demands, but just as civil rights for racially oppressed people don't go nearly far enough in terms of calling for economic and social and cultural transformation, I've always supported those radical sectors of the LGBTQ movement that called for the abolition of marriage as a capitalist institution and the dismantling of the military. And I think that looking at the movements overall more generally, the fight for Black liberation, for queer liberation in the 70s and 80s, my perspective was that I was seeing separate things who did not like interact as much. So I guess I'm wondering if you, you know, advocating for communities you're not a part of, did you feel like you were in the minority there? Not really. You know, as an activist who grew up in Marxist and communist circles, I always identified with people who were trying to 
challenge the notion that there was only one important revolutionary struggle, and that was the struggle of the working class. Now, I am not myself a member of the working class, but I learned early on to identify with working class struggles and to recognize their importance, but also, at the same time, to be able to treat Black struggles as equally important. And the struggles of trans people. You always make it clear in your activism that your your work includes trans people in a way that, I mean, not to be rude, but it's frankly not always the case for older generations, right? You know, this um, emerged from the work we were doing in critical resistance. Uh, and I can remember very clearly uh, that the, the, the first stage was a kind of um, defense of the rights of trans of trans people in prison. And then we recognize the degree to which the experiences of trans people are represented uh, an institutional gendering of the prison industrial complex. That we could, we had to think about this focus on gender as structural. You know, therefore, I think I'm not the only one whose uh, awareness was expanded by involvement uh, with trans people uh, in, in, in prison. And at the same time, I was involved in campaigns against gender violence. Uh, and those campaigns uh, that uh, developed in defense of trans uh, women, uh, such as C.C. McDonald, uh, especially trans women of color, helped us to understand the structural nature of gender violence. And I can say that TGIJP, the Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project that Ms. Major led for such a long time here in the Bay Area, had a profound impact on my thinking with respect to the absolute centrality of defending trans people. I love Miss Major. That is the amazing trans elder for everyone listening. I was asking about your own experience of queerness because for many, many outlets who interview you, you know, much of the time your queerness doesn't even come up once. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm a person who doesn't, uh, you know, focus so much on um, individual identities as I do on collective struggles. Uh, you know, I'm a member of the black community, uh, but I, 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 I don't usually say as a black person. Uh, my whole notion of identity comes not from what a person happens to be, but from that person's willingness to engage in radical struggles to create a better world. Uh, and so I would say that, um, that that tension between identity and politics or or, or one might describe it as the politics of identity or the identification of political struggles as central in our quest to change uh, the world. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in struggle, let me put it that way. And I've always been, uh, since, since I was uh, a very young child, more so than being interested in uh, simply you know, naming the identity of uh, a person, whether it be myself or someone else. I, I mean, I always point out that there, there's so many Black people with whom I cannot identify. And so, you know, therefore, I, I don't talk about the Black community as a homogeneous community. Uh, 
Uh, and I don't talk about the black struggle as a struggle only of black people. I talk about the black struggle as a struggle in which people of, of many different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds have participated and are responsible uh, for the victories uh, uh, that have been won. I totally hear that, especially when, when you are framing the argument. However, right now, abolition, the prison industrial complex, we're having these conversations in the mainstream, I think more than ever. And feel free to disagree with this, but when it comes to these public discussions about mass incarceration, abolition, I often hear them being framed as a black issue, something that only affects black people. I mean, I wonder if you agree with that, but I also wonder like, how do we, how can we talk about these issues and acknowledge that black people are disproportionately affected while also letting people know that this affects all of us? You know, first of all, we're engaged in this conversation in the aftermath of the recall of uh, Chesa Boudin uh, from the, you know, from his uh, position as district attorney of San Francisco. So I, I have to acknowledge that uh, we're in a period that is a, a kind of a, you know, counter-revolutionary period, one would say, in which there are politicians, uh, liberal politicians, uh, pulling out the 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 crime, you know, the 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 crime issue, the ideology of uh, the the war against crime, and are attempting to push us back in a backwards direction. Uh, I'm saying that to insist that I think abolition is still a radical demand. And I think in, in particularly in, in, in the recent period since the rise of Black Lives Matter, and especially since uh, the summer of 2020, when more people went out into the streets than ever before, when more white people demonstrated in this country than ever before in its history, uh, that we are at a period where there is a beginning to be an understanding of the intersectionality of all of these issues, uh, of the fact that racism doesn't simply affect black communities and communities of color, but it affects, it affects everyone. Uh, capitalism is racial capitalism. Capitalism is is founded on slavery and colonialism, and that you, you can't really talk about the history of Black people without you know, also talking about uh, the genocidal assaults on Indigenous people and on Latinx populations, and also on white people. You know, perhaps this is a I, perhaps I'm referring to a quest for a different kind of intersectional understanding. But I do think uh, that uh, now more than ever before, we can glimpse the possibilities of that kind of uh, understanding. Uh, that, yeah, mass incarceration, and let me, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, mass incarceration is not simply a reenactment of slavery. I mean, of course, uh, we, 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 we're living continually the afterlife of slavery. Uh, but when, when one, one looks at the extent to which the, what we call the prison industrial complex emanates uh, from global capitalism, and the soaring prison populations that we have experienced in this country are focused largely on communities of color, on indigenous, uh, black, and Latinx, and Muslim communities, but also 
also uh, poor, poor white communities, that this same phenomenon is now beginning to be seen in places like Brazil, in um, Egypt, for example, in Europe. So this is a global uh, phenomenon that is uh, important, even as we, 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 we you know, recognize the globality of, of climate change. I was thinking that because of what you said earlier about how we need to like look beyond our own identities. And so many people though today, you know, they want to feed the poor, they want to like help homeless people, but when it comes to like voting, their votes don't indicate that those desires are real. Well, you know, it's an indication of the fact that there is so much more work to be done in this country. Uh, and uh, if if I point to the summer of 20 of 2020 as a turning point, it is um, not so much because of what was accomplished then, but rather because I think that we have created the foundation uh, for a new kind of organizing uh, that uh, emphasizes ways in which we're all interconnected and not only humans but that that the our fate is is interconnected with the fate of uh, uh, of other animals other non-human animals on this planet and the flora of this planet you, you mentioned like the DA in San Francisco who just got recalled are there big wins you can point to in recent years that like do indicate a more like positive change well, you know, yes, there have been big wins, but there have also been big losses. Uh, in a sense, uh, it's been about, um, you know, one step forward and two steps uh, backward. I'm especially concerned about this tendency now to challenge the, 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 the abolitionist uh, 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 movements uh, that have emerged in conjunction uh, with the you know, with Black Lives Matters movement, uh, and let me say parenthetically that I think that so many people came to identify with the with the call to make Black Lives Matter because they recognized that it wasn't focused. Uh, only on black people, but rather the message of that demand is that uh, in order uh, for all lives to matter, we have to guarantee that black lives matter. So there's a kind of logic of intersectionality inherent in the very demand. But, you know, I'm someone who's learned never uh, to simply assume that, you know, one or two or three or four progressive victories uh, mean that we are uh, moving in a radical direction. Uh, We always not only have to defend the victories that we win, uh, but we have to push forward. Uh, And this is a period, I think, that calls for even more intense uh, organization, organizing efforts uh, on the part of, of everyone who believes in justice and equality and freedom. So before I let you go, last question, but when it comes to your legacy, you're on t-shirts, you're on posters, you're in songs by the Rolling Stones and John Lennon, Yoko Ono. Knowing that your name and face have become something so much bigger than you, I feel like you won't have a say in what your legacy will be. Knowing that, does that legacy differ from what you would want it to be? Well, you know, whenever people have asked me about my legacy, um, I have, um, I pointed out that I'm... I'm not so interested in my individual legacy. 
as I am in in the legacy of the 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 movements that I have been in, involved in. I don't, you know, I I I feel you know pretty um, uncomfortable in this uh, position of an individual uh, who uh, should be concerned about a legacy. <laughs> even after all these years, is that true? Yes, even after all these years, because I'm aware of the ways in which, especially in capitalist societies, there's a tendency to focus on the individual at the expense of allowing people to understand that history unfolds not as a consequence of the actions and the words of great individuals, but rather as a consequence of people coming together, joining hands and uh, uniting with their differences, not across their differences, but with their differences uh, in a quest to create more freedom and more happiness in the world. Thank you so much for spending time today. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So nice to talk to you as well. And that is our show. Angela's new book that's out is called Abolition Feminism Now. And if you want to hear more about the women's house of detention where Angela's imprisoned, and specifically the prison's vital place in queer history, well, the historian Hugh Ryan is just the man to talk to. When I would talk to people about Stonewall, they would tell me, you know, that night on Stonewall, we looked to the prison because we saw the women rioting and chanting, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. And yet that didn't come up in discussions of Stonewall. And then I found out the prison was 500 feet from the Stonewall Inn, that they could see each other, that Christopher Street dead-ended into the prison, that the Gay Liberation Front was founded in part because they wanted to protest the House of Detention, that 40% of people today incarcerated in women's prisons identify as LGBTQ in some strain. Over and over again, these data points seem to tell me that this prison and prisons generally were incredibly important to queer history. These prisons were concatenating queer people into one place. And that place for women in New York was Greenwich Village, the most important spot in New York City's queer history. How could those two things not go together? Now, I got to speak to Hugh last month when his book came out. That is called The Women's House of Detention. The full interview with him is in our feed right now if you want to check that out. And I should also say, too, that Hugh's book was incredibly eye-opening and helpful when it came to preparing for this interview today. It is something just in general that I find myself continuing to return to. So big thank you to Hugh for that. And once again, his book is called The Women's House of Detention. Now, this is the final episode of our season. We're taking a big hiatus, so until we're back, you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. The show's on there at LGBTQPod, and we do have a newsletter. It's a substack. You can find that on our website at LGBTQPodcast.com. All right, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next time.